is the Meeting of Minds podcast with me, Philippa Robinson. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Philippa Robinson. So thank you, first of all, thank you um, to those of you who have been with me during 2021. Um, I started this podcast back in January. Um, And as I've said before, I did wonder whether I'd have enough to say to keep me going all year. But it turns out that, yes, I do have enough to say. And for those of you who have been with me throughout this year, this today is the 42nd episode. And um, I just want to say thank you um, for being here, for listening, for telling your your friends and for... um, the messages that I've had, which have truly, um, truly been wonderful to receive, especially at those times when I wonder whether actually, um, what my, what, what the heck am I doing? So, um, yeah, just thank you to everybody. Um, just a couple of, uh, little announcements, please do go over to my website and sign up for my newsletter. There will be a link in the show notes, um, or you can go to my, um, direct my website safeandsupported.co.uk and uh, sign up for the newsletter there or go to my instagram where i'm at safe and supported coaching and go to the bio click on the links and you will see um, a link there to click to sign up for my newsletter um while you are there there's also a link um to my book on amazon did you know i'd written a book um Sorry, I keep telling everybody. Um, the book I See Me um, is steadily um, um, getting out into the world, which is just lovely. It really is. And uh, there is a link in the bio uh, on Instagram. Obviously, there's a page and a link on the uh, on my website as well. Um, and actually, the only other thing I want to say that I don't usually say because um, I don't usually use this podcast for promoting uh, my coaching business, but I just wanted to uh, let you know in case you hadn't realized that I am actually a coach Um, and uh, I'm a therapeutic coach and I help people with personal development and healing from trauma. And I have um, some spaces available for the new year. I don't take on a lot of clients um, at the same time because I need to have headspace to keep those clients um, with me for the time that we're working together. So uh, if you are interested in working with me, um, get in touch. And, you know, lastly, I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a very happy and healthy New Year. Um, Let's hope 2022 is a good year for everyone. And yeah, I just want to say Merry Christmas and a very happy new year to everybody. And now on with um, the episode. So today I'm going to answer um, two questions that I have had from listeners. They're quite big, chunky um, questions. Uh, So it's just as well. I've only got two, actually, because this is going to end up being... uh, a longish episode, I reckon. So the second question, just to let you know what is coming, the second question is 
about how to heal from betrayal. It's a big one, isn't it? So that's going to be the second question. The first question that I was asked and um, seems the appropriate one to start with as well. Uh, back in, I think it was the mother wound episode, I referred very briefly to attachment styles. And I did say, if anybody wants to know more about attachment styles to let me know, well, somebody did let me know that they wanted to know more about attachment styles. So um, that's what I'm gonna talk about first today. And um, I have done a bit of research because I know what I feel about attachment styles and I know how my attachment style um, relates to my experience as an adult uh, in my relationships. But I just wanted to be a bit clearer on the whole um, of attachment theory or more of attachment theory so I can talk to um, I can talk a bit more to it all and hopefully be a benefit to more people. So attachment theory, um, why is it important? Well, our dependency on other people to survive and thrive starts in childhood, obviously. Um, babies are totally dependent on their on their parents, but it doesn't end there. Um, primarily through romantic relationships, but also for some, it can be any sort of relationship. The way that we attach to those important caregivers at the beginning of our life can have a huge impact on our relationships um, later in life. And as a result, on, you know, on our health and, and well-being. Research in the 1980s discovered that how we attach in our early years provides the basis for attachment in relationships in our adulthood. It's not, you know, um, a hard and fast rule. Uh, it, it's more of an indicator, really. But it certainly um, gives us something to look at um, if we want to improve our relationships. And really, who doesn't want better relationships? Um, I know I certainly do. So what is attachment theory? Um, you will also hear um, people referring to attachment styles um, as well, and I've probably mentioned them both already. Um, firstly, um, let me assure you that this is not just about babies' relationships with mothers. Yes, the, the attachment with that mother is one of the most fundamental relationships for a newborn, but there are other uh, relationships that can have an equally um, uh, big effect on um, attachment. Um, that's with uh, the, another parent, if there's another parent around, siblings, grandparents, godparents, close family, friends, nursery um, workers, uh, school teachers, you know, all of those people in a child's early life have a big impact 
or to a to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the actual circumstances for that child. But it's not just um, about the mother. But also, having said that, um, a child's early experiences with their parents, not just the mother, have a profound impact on their relationship skills as adults. And that's really why we hear a lot of talk, a lot more talk these days, certainly in the personal development um, field, around attachment theory and attachment styles, because it is really helpful. Um, it's a helpful thing, tool, really, um, to, to be using to look at um, when one is doing you know, personal development work. So what is referred to as attachment theory was first described in the 1950s by a man called John Bowlby. Bowlby, I think that's how you say it. The basic premise of the theory is that children who received love and support from their caregivers in a consistent manner and in a way that allows the child to be themselves those children are more likely to have secure attachment. So children who did not receive um, that kind of upbringing tend to have an insecure attachment style. And insecure attachment style tends to be broken down into three styles. One, being anxious. That is also sometimes called resistant or also ambivalent, but I'm going to call it anxious today. The second one is avoidant. And later research after John Bowlby's research brought in a third type of insecure attachment style, and that is usually called disorganized. And I'm going to talk about all three of those uh, in a moment. There is, there is no one style better than the other. Um, it, it is what it is, really, because the basis of our own style forms very early on, and it's a subconscious survival mechanism, really. We can, as, as babies, learn to adapt our style if we are conscious about it as adults, so we can learn to adapt our style as adults if we are conscious about it and do the work. But at the very least, um, we can understand our primary style from childhood and understand how it informs our adult relationships we might display different styles with different people as well as they trigger different reactions in us. So comfort and closeness with another person, another human being is primary to our development uh, as a child, which is why we develop survival skills to get what we need. To get what we need from others will depend on how they present to us, which is why we might be triggered differently by different people. However, most people 
do develop a primary attachment style. And it's this style that is likely to show up most in our adult relationships. Also, um, it, is, it is possible that our primary or our initial style can change over the years. Um, someone who starts off, you know, secure in their attachment may become more insecure if they experience significant trauma or a series of traumas with little support or, or not the right um, sort of support and it, it's not it won't definitely change their style to be more insecure but it might change it um or it might just rattle them for a while um but then they they recover and all of that what, what i'm saying today about attachment style is very much an individual thing um there is no general rules there are no it's very much the individual's experience uh, in their life in their relationships um and uh which makes it very much a general overall thing that i'm i'm talking about in lots of ways um, but I, I, I think I'm hoping that if you are interested enough to be listening to this, you will be able to take something away from it that that will be useful. So with work, people who grow up with an insecure attachment style can successfully securely attach to an adult partner. Um, that does require work. So what I am going to do is go through each style um, one by one. And I, I, I said just um, a few moments ago that there isn't any one style that's better than the other. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the more of us who can have a secure attachment style, um, the better our relationships will be. So the more we will find it easier to show up in the world as our true self, I think. And um, the more people doing that, um, the better the world will become. Um, but just because you might not have a secure attachment style is not the end of you having good relationships. I, I'm sure it will come as no surprise. I did not, I do not, I certainly did not have a secure attachment style and I, I'm doing work and I am getting better, but I am still um, a lot of the time very much in an insecure style but we'll come on to that in the mo in a moment and i have healthy relationships and i am thriving in the world so uh, i mean this that i'm talking about today about attachment theory and attachment styles like all the other things i've been talking about in this series 3 are really things that i have found useful to give me information to help me understand my situation as i have been doing my personal development work. So they are, they're not, none of them alone are an answer, not even together are they an answer, really. They are just things that I have, have learned about. I have taken little bits from here and little bits from there that have helped me. And the bits that haven't helped me or haven't made sense, I've just left, I've just left alone. Um, 
So really, all I'm trying to do today is give you more information about this, in, just in case it helps. So first of all, let's look at secure. So a secure attachment, for an, a secure attachment, that really requires emotional intelligence um, on the part of the primary caregiver, the adult. Um, to let the child walk through their own work, through their own feelings, be free to explore the world. And, you know, the caregiver will be there with love and support the vast majority of the time, which really creates actual genuine independence um, in the child after an early period of secure dependence. So, the child feels um, supported enough to, to, to go out and seek their own place in the world, knowing that there is um, a warm and loving place to come back to if, if they need to. And what really cements secure attachment is actually repair. So we all, we all get it wrong. Um, you know, I'm a parent of teenagers and boy, I'm a, you know, do I get it wrong? We all get it wrong um, at times. And, you know, not just as, as a parent, as a friend, as a, as a daughter, as a, you know, as an employer, all relationships, we can get, we can get things wrong. But if we can acknowledge um, that, that things have, have, have not gone quite the way one would have liked them to, and genuinely um, seek reparation, you know, that is where the strength is found as long as, um, as, as long as that need for reparation is not too often. And what is too often will vary um, from person to person. But, you know, if you are constantly um, getting it wrong um, and constantly apologizing, then I, I should imagine you can see that that um, is more is 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 unlikely to um, foster a secure attachment. So we have secure, which I've just described, and then insecure. And insecure is broken down into anxious, avoidant and disorganized. So I'm gonna talk about anxious first. And anxious attachment um, arises where there is inconsistent parenting, where, you know, one, one moment, one day, um, the parent is full of support and love and warmth, and the next day they're totally disinterested. And it might be, there might be all manner of reasons for why they are not interested, but it's that unpredictability of how um, they might respond. And it, it's that push, pull, well, not push, pull, but it's that one day they're there and then the next day they're, they're pushing the child away. And, you know, parents with depression or mental health issues can are you know a relationship 
with a parent with depression or mental health issues is susceptible to, uh, to being um, an anxious attachment style. Um, also, a parent who is too close, so the child doesn't experience um, their own way in life because the parent is always, always there and um, the child doesn't even need to look to the parent to soothe when necessary because the parent is already there. That can also create an att anxious attachment style because the child is not used to, you know, um, being independent and, and doing things for themselves. And what I'll do in a minute, I think I'll go through them all and then I'll come back to how to heal from um, the, the, the three inconsistent, uh, sorry, the three insecure styles. So now I'm going to look at avoidant. So avoidant attachment style comes where a parent is emotionally unavailable or emotionally absent. Um, where the child learns to not have too many feelings or uh, be independent and look after themselves. The parent might be there physically, but, you know, is not there emotionally and is not intending, attending to the child's needs um, on an emotional level. And the child learns um, to not want or, or need anything from the parent. And I suppose it's kind of what we would normally think as um, neglectful, being neglectful. And actually that, that sort of be independent, look after yourself, don't need anybody else is actually reinforced in our culture. So um, someone who grows up with an avoidant attachment style will constantly find as they grow older um, that the, the, the skills that they learn by having an avoidant, avoidant attachment style are actually praised and that they are um, independent and can look after themselves. But actually, um, it, it's built on an insecure attachment style, an insecure foundation, really. Um, and, you know, problems show up in relationships where people with this attachment style sh um, shut down, um, and there's a lack of response, really, because they don't know how to do that. They feel better alone um, and they don't seek out the connection with the other person. So someone with an, an anxious attachment style wants that connection and actively seeks it out. Um, but in an avoidant, someone with an avoidant style will will not seek out that connection. So they will be very distant. Um, but, you know, if they're willing to do the work, there, there is actually nothing to stop growth in a relationship, um, even with an avoidant, uh, avoidant style. So, um, yeah, so that's avoidant. And then we have disorganized. So I've heard, I've come across a few, um, they're, they're, they're largely the same, but um, I've heard 
disorganized describe as a um as someone who sort of um sometimes will will, will um present an anxious style and sometimes will prevent will present sorry uh, an avoidant style so there is no consistency um with how they show up even in their insecure attachment style i've also heard it described as more prevalent where there is um violence uh, in uh, around the child or you know the child experience directly experiences violence in their childhood or severe neglect um But it, it largely comes from a situation where the child really needs comfort from the caregiver, but the caregiver is the person they are terrified of. So it is sort of, um, uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a little bit of an anxious style in that I need this connection um, and you're unpredictable, but I really need something from you. But then the avoidant comes in because it's like, oh yeah, but I'm, t- I'm, I'm scared of you. Um, I'm terrified of you, in fact. So um, disorganized is a, a bit of a mix of the, of, of the two. But I think it's largely called disorganized because there's real there's no real pattern of how the person will seek connection and comfort. Um, their behavior is the, the behavior the child experiences is so inconsistent that the child has the, the, the child can't even um, develop a pattern of how they react towards their parent in order to make sure they get what they need. Um, It's so that there's total inconsistency with the parent and the child can't work it out either. Um, It's really um, you know it's hard disorganized it just make it just makes me um, it's it's quite hard to talk about actually Um, because I can just feel the the um how scared the child is really who who experiences this and the way to the way to heal really from a disorganized attachment style is first of all to deal with the trauma and then to heal in relationship in fact all three of the insecure attachment styles the best way to heal is actually be aware of the attachment style and then learn about it and heal in relationship um particularly with a disorganized um soothing the younger parts of ourselves is really going to help um because those younger parts are still really quite scared um Yeah, um, in an with an anxious style, as I've said, anxious um, people who ex- uh, who have an anxious attachment style, they really seek connection. So they will really champion the relationship if, you, if they are in relationship. They will really, you know, keep the couple together um, and, you know, perhaps seek therapy and, you know, really, really make an effort 
to keep that connection going. But that can also be a bit smothering for a partner, especially a partner who doesn't understand what is happening. Um, with an anxious style, but actually with all of them, actually, the nervous system is really easily dysregulated because of having an insecure style, which means that they are on high alert, hypervigilant much more often. Um, and, and being in relationship, having a partner will, will, will help them calm, calm down and soothe themselves. But obviously that depends on the work the partner is doing as well and the partner's attachment style. There is a massive myth. Well, it is quite a myth, really, that women tend to be more anxious and men more um, avoidant. But I, for one, am avoidant. Um, although I'll come on to that in a moment. It's a real myth. There are just as many anxious men and avoidant women. So um, if you hear that, it's not actually true. Um, yeah, so working working in relationship with um, a partner can really help work on that insecure attachment style, whichever one it is that, that you might be displaying. But that does involve informing your partner and explaining to them um, what you've learned and asking them for their help, which, you know, is quite a vulnerable thing to do. So it, you know, it does take some courage to do this work, but I just want to assure you it absolutely is possible. And as I've just hinted at there, we, we might, we don't, it is also common to have more than one and to show up in different places, in different relationships, in different um, attachment styles. Um, and, you know, I recognize all four of them, <laughs> really. I mean, I am, I, I didn't grow up feeling secure at all, but I do feel more secure now. Um, I would say though that the the secure attachment that I now um experience is because of the work I have done myself. I wouldn't say yet it is it has actually been done with my partner in our relationship. Although the very fact that we are still together after the tumultuous time we have is in itself healing and in itself is creating more security. Um, but we haven't worked on our attachment styles together yet. Um, so, you don't just have to be in relationship to heal. It is possible to do the work yourself. And actually then you are working with your inner child really and um, healing, healing your inner child, which is transformational work in itself. It really is. I assure you, it really is. Um, I definitely, um, over the years, have bounced from anxious to avoidant to disorganized. Um, I'd say, uh, if I had to say I which I can only choose one, it will probably be avoidant, but there is a large part of disorganized in me as well. I'm less anxious. I am anxious as well, but I'm least anxious. Uh, 
I always I have openly admitted over the years that on any given day I could react to the same uh, same set of circumstances in a different way depending on what day it is and that's very much my disorganized style panning out there um and you know relationships trigger all all of our attachment style stuff from our childhood um but actually being in relationship is a really good place to heal and our nervous system, which um, is really important. And I've done a lot of work trying to calm my nervous system. Um, and I'm not sure I've talked about enough of that this um, season. I, I will do more of that. But our nervous system will show us how much more regulated it is, the more we can be secure. And our health and well-being will benefit because it's all connected. Um, so really, um, doing the work is really beneficial to us, the people around us, all our relationships. Um, but it, it, it does take some work and it's not always easy, but actually it's not always really hard either. Um, yeah, I'm so glad I've done the work I've done and I wouldn't um, change it now. Uh, but I think in the early days, there were times when I would have quite happily stopped if I felt like I could. But I think once I started, um, there was no stopping. And I think a lot of people will tell you that, that once you get going with this personal development work um, and start looking at childhood stuff and start healing, that it... Um, the transformation that is possible, it just keeps you going. It, re it really does. Um, it's marvellous. Uh, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, aren't I? So that is attachment style. Um, and the reason that that is a good thing to look at is because however we learn attachment as a, uh, as a very young child, um, and there are some people who will say that actually our attachment style is pretty much um, in place by the time we're 18 months old. But there are things that can happen to us later um, that can well, that, that could well change that. Um, I definitely think that's what happened to me. Mine changed over the years as more and more things happened. Um, but um, I hope that's useful. Um, I'm the person who asked uh, me for this. I hope this has been some, um, you, you know, that this has been good for you to hear, hear more about this. Um, let me know. Okay, so next we're going to move on to um, a biggie, which is how to recover from betrayal. So, you know, it's a big question, isn't it? and um, totally different to the, the previous one um, where, you know, I could do some, I did some research on attachment styles and I, I could tell you my experience of it. Um, betrayal and how we experience betrayal as individuals 
just feels like a much more important, well, not more important, but um, much more personal thing. And I feel much more responsibility um, talking about this. Um, and it's because it feels much more real. Now, I don't have answers. All I can do is give you my response to um, that question. And I just hope it's useful. Uh, right, here goes. So my initial feelings when I think about betrayal is that initially we, we probably want two things simultaneously. First of all, we want to hurt the other person like they've hurt us. And secondly, at the same time, we want to be okay as quickly as possible. We don't want to feel the hurt of the betrayal. And, oh, um, of course, we feel those two things. Um, I'd say they're totally understandable and um, natural reactions. And the betrayals that inflict the most damage, it seems to me, are the ones where we have, you know, we have an intimate loving bond with someone that has been torn. And when we have experienced deep love with another person, we kind of experience a sort of merging with them in that deep love. So when the bond is torn, it's as if we've sort of lost part of ourself. And so not only have we lost our bond with the other person, we have lost part of ourself, which I think adds another dimension to what we're feeling around the betrayal. And I suppose when I'm thinking of betrayal here, the question that was asked is how do we recover from betrayal? And the person who asked me that question um, is going through a split with their partner. And I suppose that's the natural, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of betrayal, but um, there are other sorts of betrayal. I suppose a friend can betray us. Um, they can betray our confidence by telling something, telling something to somebody else that we thought they would keep to themselves, or they may, you know, go off with our partner. I mean, that's a double betrayal, isn't it? Um, how else might we be betrayed? Um, I'm struggling really to, to think on the spot because I sort of ploughed in thinking about a split from a romantic partner. Um, so I am going to carry on speaking um, with this person's split from their romantic partner in mind. But I do think that a lot of what I'm going to say probably relates actually to any sort of betrayal. So when I was sitting thinking about this and what I was going to say, 
um, because I have sat down and written some notes because I feel that I can't really ad-lib this one. It's too important. Well, not that the others haven't been important, but it, it just felt really important to me that I um, didn't go off on a ten tangent and I kept a point. So the first thing that I would say is um, try not to feel the need to rush, to rush the whole process. Because the feelings that, you're going to experience need time to to come up to be able to come up you need to give yourself time to feel the feelings allow them to come up and give those feelings space to have room to breathe and if you can allow yourself that time and space you're also giving them giving those feelings an opportunity to be felt and they will move on the more that we try and bottle feelings up, sit on them, not allow them to come up, they don't actually go when they don't actually move through our body and go. They stay there. And it's that keeping the feelings in and pretending they're not there and not allowing them to pass that actually keeps them festering for longer than they need to. So although, albeit in the moment we are pushing them down and not feeling them, which feels better, we are actually prolonging the whole process um, by not allowing them to move through. And, and sometimes we can't give ourselves in that moment. We might just have to be carrying on and not give ourselves time and knowingly keeping those feelings down and not letting them out is very different to just um pretending they're not there or just hoping they'll go away knowingly keeping them down until you get to a space and time when you can let them surface um is 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 different and um you know i'm a serial bury them pretend they're not there um and you know they came back to bite me in the ass uh so don't, yeah, don't rush it. Let the feel, yeah, feel the feelings. It, and that takes time and it requires you to be able to sit in those uncomfortable feelings um, to allow them to pass without distracting yourself or numbing. So distracting yourself can be keeping busy, exercising, um, uh, doing anything other than um, feel your feelings and numbing are largely things like drinking, drugs, um, shopping, sex, exercise as well. I mean, th there are any number of ways that we can numb out of our feelings. And distraction and numbing, you know, are part of the process as well sometimes because we might not be ready to deal with them with the feelings but it there will need to be room to allow the feelings in somewhere along the line in order to move through the process okay so one is feel the feelings okay um the next thing is that came to my mind is know that there is there is grief 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 deep sadness 
for what has been lost in this situation that you're experiencing. But also there is an added layer of grief and sadness um, around the expectation of what was going to be, what, what, where the relationship was going. Um, but that has now gone. So not only are you grieving the betrayal, you're also grieving the expectation that has, has now been lost. And, and that's a really important thing to acknowledge and work through the grief of that as well. This other feeling of grief is not um, something we always recognize, which is why I do talk about it. And, you know, um, I think many of us in a betrayal situation would be able to see that we feel angry. Um, but anger is a secondary emotion, which means that there is another emotion underneath it. And if you are feeling anger, particularly intense anger, the chances are there is something else underneath it, which is quite likely to be grief. And it may well be the grief that I am, have just spoken about now around the loss of expectation. Okay, so the next thing that I would say is trust your gut instinct. So take time to slow down and listen to yourself, to understand yourself. There'll be lots of people telling you what to do, how to cope, how to move on, what to do next, but only you know what is right for you and when is the right time to do whatever it is that you're that, that you're doing that you know if it doesn't feel right and you're doing it because someone else told you to there is a fair chance that it's not going to go well so take time to slow down and learn to listen to your gut instinct and we all have a strong um, gut instinct telling us what is the right or wrong thing for us. And it might be that you, you need to pose questions like, is this the right thing? Or is this the right thing? And, and see if you can tune into your body reacting to one particular option. Um more than it reacts to another because we've in in the fast lives that we all live or have been living i mean i know the last two years 18 months two years have been a bit weird but in the fast-paced lives that we that we live we are losing touch with that gust instinct and you know it's the one it's the one thing that's really looking out for our higher good. It really is. It knows us better than anybody else. And we know ourselves better than anybody else. So try not to be swayed by what other people are telling you to do or say, or they're telling you how to be. Listen to yourself to work out what feels right. 
And the other thing that came to my mind when I was thinking how I would respond to the question of healing from betrayal um, is that betrayal really knocks um, our ability to trust. It's often temporary. Um, and how long that temporary um, lack of ability to trust, how long it lasts will vary from person to person. But trust will come back. If we had it in the first place, it will come back. But it does take time. However, you might be a bit more like me and realize that you never really trusted yourself or put trust in others. But now you can see that as a result of how you feel around this betrayal. And now might be the time for you to look inwards and do your inner work to primarily learn to trust yourself because once you trust yourself, you can learn to trust others. And that is one example of, of many of how a betrayal actually ends up being a learning um, and teaching opportunity. Um, if only we can take the time to learn from it. And lastly, a very small point that came to mind was around shame. And um, I think some of us might have a tendency to feel shame around a betrayal, um, to feel that we are somehow a bad or a wrong person, which is why the betrayal has happened. Now, that is unlikely to be happening just as a result of the betrayal, but what the betrayal may well do is trigger feelings that we already have from our childhood that will lead us to believe that we are somehow a bad person, which is why the betrayal has happened, which is why we can experience shame at times like this. And the shame will sometimes lead us to create a mask that we wear um, to pretend that everything is okay, that we're okay, that um, we are not feeling, well, the mask will allow us to hide our vulnerability. And what it also does in creating that false self, that idea that that is not true, is that it hides our true self. And really, if we are feeling any of those things, my, um, not advice, my invitation to you would be to resist the creation of a false self and instead look for the true self and step take this opportunity to step into that truer version of yourself um, that may take time 
it may take time for you even to begin to consider that as an option. But I'm just wishing to sow this seed now in case it becomes something that is possible for you sometime, sometime soon. So that was my initial take on healing from betrayal. And then I had a bit of a wobble because I felt so much responsibility about this. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to going to see if I can find in any of my many books that I've gotten things and think about healing from betrayal. And actually, funnily enough, um, what I did find sort of told me that those things that I've just been talking about were pretty much um, all along the right lines. But I just thought I'd share this quick, these quick seven points, these seven tips, because some of them are really, really practical rather than deep and meaningful and feeling like I um, came up with. Um, and you might, you just might find these useful. So uh, tip number one, gain some detachment. So step back and view yourself um, more as a helper rather than a victim. Detach from what is going on, which obviously is completely the opposite of the feeling the feelings, which is what I talked about. But sometimes we have to detach first just to keep going before we can feel the feelings. Right, number two, don't act uh, as if you're feeling worse or better than you really are. So be open and honest about how you're actually feeling. Yes, that's really vulnerable, but the betrayal is vulnerable and this is a chance to learn and do something different. That's kind of what I said. Uh, number three, make a plan. So do some personal work and work out where you are wounded. Betrayal will trigger different wounds in all of us. Don't just rely on time healing the wound. Make a plan. Get it healed. Number four, feel the hole inside and grieve. Make a promise yourself to fill it and do it. Make sure you do it. Number five, seek a confidant of course. So someone worthy of your vulnerability and your trust, someone who perhaps who's been through it and come out the other side. And, you know, sometimes we don't have the right person in our life at the right time. And it might be that we have to seek somebody out who we might have to pay for it. Like I paid to go to therapy for three years. And there were times when I really thought, why do I have to do this? Why is there not somebody in my life who can help me, but the reality is I needed the help. I paid for it and I have healed. So sometimes we just have to pay for to get that help. Number six, don't fixate on the past or what might've been. So when I say you've got to grieve for what might've been, then um, that's not fixating on it. It's just grieving it, feeling that feeling. But I do agree, don't fixate on it because really, that's not going to do you any good in the long run. And the last one, and I think this is fabulous. 
So counter any feelings of self-pity because we all have feelings of self-pity in situations um, like betrayal. So counter that self-pity feeling by being of service to someone else. Random acts of kindness are known and do build self-esteem and can help us on the road to recovery. So do something good for somebody else. You'll be amazed how good it makes you feel. Okay, so that's it. I hope the person who asked me the question about betrayal, I hope that's helped. I hope I've done it justice. Um, I hope it's been useful. And um, I just want to say, if you've listened to the end, thank you for being here. Thank you for staying with me and listening to my podcast during um, 2021. And I wish you all the very best for the festive season. I'm going to have um, a break of two or three weeks now, and I will be back in January 2022, um, hopefully with some guests. That's my plan. Okay, you take care. Lots of love. Look after yourselves and um, see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Meeting of Minds podcast. You can find this podcast in all the usual places. Please tell your friends please subscribe. And if you have a moment, I'd be really grateful if you could rate and review as it helps other people find us and helps me spread the messages of empowerment and positivity that I'm really passionate about. If you want to find out more about me, you can visit my website www.safeandsupported.co.uk. Until next time, bye.